today is on female circumcision and racism. I am pleased and honored to be joined by Sister Zainab Noor. Sister Zainab is a community activist based in Cardiff. She worked in the public sector as a professional social worker for 25 years, particularly in mental health service and child protection. At present, she is supporting families in care proceedings. In this podcast, we will be focusing on many issues, including anti-FGM or female genital mutilation narrative, FGM laws and policies, and of course, we will be discussing the impact of those issues on certain families and communities. Sister Zainab, would you mind giving our audience a brief background about yourself? I'm based in Cardiff. I've grown up in Cardiff. I've been in Wales since I was a baby. And I'm born to migrant parents. My my parents migrated to Wales when, in the 1950s. I used to do community work before I went into social work. And I went into social work by accident because I uh, I learned about like benefits rights and getting people what, what they're entitled to. So it led me into a career in social work, which I worked in many areas, child protection, mental health services. But over the last eight years, I started doing charity work and set up an African diaspora women's organization in Cardiff. And I was part of that for 10 years. I got involved with the anti-FGM campaign as a young girl, as 18, because in my community at that time in Wales, every girl was circumcised. And this is something that we had to address within our families and communities and we were made to believe that it was Islamic and we found that it wasn't and we did a big campaign. I didn't believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would create our bodies and tell us for it to be cut and and it affected a lot of girls so I used to get the discussion from an Islamic perspective. And our community and our ladies then did abandon it. We really got them started talking about the conversation. So I joined the anti-FGM campaign and I was very much part of the implementation of the law when the law was introduced. And I was part of an FGM organization in London. I actively campaigned, took part in training, took part in events, conferences. I openly talked, I went on the media. And then obviously I kind of left the campaign, used to keep in touch with people and then come back to the campaign. I saw a different side. I saw how communities were being affected by the FGM laws or um, women who's had historical circumcision being referred to safeguarding. And I looked how these policies were having an impact on our ladies. So I tried to talk about it. And then I would constantly be silenced by these anti-FGM activists. And I, and I just said, you know what, I, our ladies, we need to tell our side this story that's been on the mainstream media it, uh, by the activists is one is one voice. It's it's a different voice to what ours is. Mm-hmm. I wanted to show how our women and our communities have been criminalised by the law. Let's move on to the terminology. Please, can you explain the term FGM and who invented it and why? I think the terminology FGM, F female gender mutilation, was invented by a feminist, a white radical feminist who joined the anti FGM movement back in the 90s. They, the activists wanted to move away from the word in female circumcision to FGM. And well, they wanted to replace female circumcision. They wanted to get more funding. They wanted to get more publicized. So they felt they needed to change the name. 
And what this the radical feminist did was she just felt, she just kept saying that Africans were barbarics and this is mutilation. And then started calling circumcised women mutilated. And the ladies, they had circumcision, would say to her, no, we're not, we're not mutilated. But they would never listen to their side. They goes, no, this is mutilation. So those young girls who went to the anti-FGM organisation for support would constantly be told they'd be mutilated. So that's how the name changed and then it was endorsed and they used it everywhere and it, it, it had a purpose. But women who's had circumcision that they don't agree is degrading to use this word um, to any members of our community, our ladies. We have our own words in circumcision in my culture. It's called halales. These words, so the words that we use are, are not like um, accepted, not in, you know, we didn't create this word FGM. The FGM word was created by the feminists who had, who had an initiative, who who had a motive, um, but not the community. And it's not something the communities we use. Obviously, you see an individual activist that might go on the mainstream media and will say she's mutilated. That's her story and that's her life experience. And she feels that that's her self as an individual. But the 200 million women that's been circumcised would disagree, you know? So, so I don't agree with the terminology. I find it, I think it's racist, it's degrading, and we should move away from using it. You know, we should not use it at all. You've gone completely the other side of the campaign. Why have you changed now? So I'm really, I'm passionate about girls' rights. I'm, I'm, I'm passionate that young girls and women should have um, their voices and safe spaces to talk about any issues that affect them, especially when it comes to any kind of abuse and that. So for me, is when I started to get involved with the campaign, I saw it as something happening to non-consenting children. And I don't believe a girl should be held down and have um, uh, her private parts cut so I went to educate and create an awareness that this was wrong and I'm totally still against it in every form you know because I don't believe another adult should have should have a right over a, a young girl's body to to alter it in a way that is not necessary at all let that child grow up when they're older what they want to do with their bodies and their consenting age but not when they're non-consenting age so that was it for me and i and i saw that i saw in my community the harm that it had on young girls like young girls in in our community had type 3 female circumcision they weren't able to go to the toilet properly they maybe had infections so it affected them physically you know, and our mothers and our aunties and grandparents, they didn't really understand the female body and how this procedure had an effect. But going along the lines, there's different forms of female circumcision and many different communities have different forms. Some are harmful, some are not. But the one, the, the, one, the type three that used to happen in my community was, was, was not good at all and was harmful in that sense. So, so then when I got involved with the campaign is I was just trying to get um, better healthcare services for these women who needed to have the, the de-infibrillation operation, who need to be treated for um, proper healthcare with their infections. But did I ever think that we were going to be criminalized and victimized? Mm -hmm. And what I saw is women who's had historical circumcision that might go to hospital for cervical smear or antenatal, they get asked this question, oh, have you had female circumcision? Well, they call it FGM, which whatever. And then they answer the question and then they make a referral to safeguarding. And then the health professionals will say, oh, we've got to because it's part of the policy. So we looked at how these policies has been implemented are having a mass, it's discriminating against our women. So the very women, these activists and these safeguarding professionals, they, they say they're out there to support our women. But what they're doing is they're victimizing us and they're victimizing our ladies. 
and our ladies don't know they come and tell us their stories what's happened so they they're saying they're supporting us but they're not they're victimizing our women please can you tell us more about these laws when they came into action and how they were implemented so the FGM law, I think, was 1985, and that was an act that no FGM should be done to any British girls in the UK, whatever. And then they had then an amendment in 2003 um, where any girls that was taken out of the country um, who were British, if they took them to, like, Africa and then circumcised and brought them back, then, they, again, that's illegal. Then the recent one, the recent one after that then is the 2015, which is the mandatory reporting that every health professional has to report and any girls under 18 if they've got female circumcision. So the 2015 measures, they had a massive impact on our, on our communities because women who's got historical circumcision, they might be going to have a baby. Um, and, the, and these are adult African women. They never had circumcision here. They migrated here from Africa and come to Lindia, join families on spouse, whatever. And they're having a baby. And then this, their circumcision is talked about and questioned. And they're, they're forced to talk about it because the law is, they're asking them, even though they shouldn't really be asking them because you don't act another woman. If they categorize FGM is abuse or whatever they call it, um, physical abuse, then sexual, sexual abuse as well is categorised in the Children's Act, then they should be given the same rights. You wouldn't ask a woman whether she's been sexually abused. So these, so the 2015 measures, I would say the mandatory reporting has had an effect. They're supposed to report under 18, but they're reporting on adults and then they're putting that in the data. And that's, and that's how they get referred, either families get their kids taken from them, put on FGM orders, it leads to other things. And these people, these women are innocent and, mm -hmm. and it's not fair. And I want, I want, I want the pub, British public to know about this injustice, how it's done, so they need to know how taxpayers' money is being used to victimise circumcised women. Let's move on to the latest FGM data in Wales, how this data is compiled and how they are presented. We did an event with men a couple of years ago and what we did was we got we, we concentrated on Wales as an example. You know, Wales, Cardiff is a, a small city, we're based in Cardiff. So we got the data from Public Health Wales because since 2015, Public Health, they have to report it and, and professionals and police, they have to report on any cases of girls who's been found to have circumcision. So they compile that data. So that data is public. So what we did was we got that data, we analysed it, and there's no children under 18 on there. What they've done is, oh, they've mixed children and adults. And the reason why they've done that, because they go and present at conferences, like one conference I was at, oh, 2,734 ladies in Wales had circumcision, newly recorded. It's newly recorded since 2015. And what they're doing is they're recording adult migrant women historical circumcision. And that is presented as new data. But it doesn't mean the female circumcision happened now. Something that happened to migrant women who migrated here. They've just gone through half service for antenatal cervicals, you know, that they have to have some kind of gynecology input. And then they are asked the question, have you had female circumcision? Yeah, well, they ask them, have they had FGM again? I always say female circumcision. And then that is recorded. And the other part of the data, which a lot of people don't know that is recorded, is women type four, which is a lot of young white Western girls have, they have um, genital piercings and it's classified as type four. I think they've taken out the data, but that takes 84% or something of the data. And then that is present, even though it's legally allowed to happen, but is, is recorded as, as a form of FGM. 
and then that's putting the data. So it misleads and misinforms the, the public. But the best way to argue about it, I know for us in Wales, is when we presented that conference two years ago, me and Saha, was we put out the data in Wales and it is inadequate because you've got children and adults mixed together and you've got historical cases. They are not new cases. So as far as I'm concerned, this narrative when they say FGM is academic in the UK, please prove it to me. I can't, I can't find any proof. A 47-year-old woman went and she's pregnant and she had a circumcision as a seven-year-old girl in Africa, lived here for 35 years, and then she, oh. she's got a 22-year-old son and then she finds out she's pregnant. So she then goes through antenatal. And then they ask her the question, have you had the female circumcision? And she says yes. And they record that as new data. Do you think the FGM law is effective no, it criminalises our communities. It criminalises and victimises circumcised women. It racially oh. profiles African families. C can you tell us a little bit more about the impact of this law? The majority of cases and families that I'm supporting who's been placed on FGM orders are Muslim women. The um, vast majority are Somali women. So how it impacts them? Is, is impacting them on a great deal because they are racially profiled. They're going away on Africa and they go into Heathrow Airport and they get stopped. Ask all these questions. So, you know, they are British citizens. When they're leaving the country or when they're coming oh. back, they've stopped people at the airport. It's part of an operation, Operation oh. Limelight. And they're saying they're not doing anything wrong. The campaign in Bristol in 2018 found out the Somali community woke up and did a campaign and we, we exposed them in the media mm -hmm. in Bristol about so many families were stopped at the airport, so many ladies, uh, they're taking their kids on holiday and they, they, go and get, they go and ask the authorization to leave a week early and then next minute you got the social worker, the police and the school coming to you at your door. This is, this is discrimination, this is racial profiling. It happens particularly in Somali, but it does happen to Sudanese and some Eritrean families, but Sudanese, Somalis are the main ones. And it happens to a couple of other Africans, like we've had a couple of Nigerian cases now. There's an, an Nigerian family mm -hmm. we're currently supporting, and she's had her four-year-old daughter taken into care, placed on FGM orders, or being referred to safeguarding and investigating. And it's just ridiculous. Something that happened to them as a non-consenting child that they had no control of, and you're blaming them for something that happened to them that they didn't agree. They were held down by somebody, adults, and their parents made that decision. And the next minute, they've grown up as adults, had children, and you're saying, you're saying to them they're going to cut their, their children. So the policies that's been implemented that is in Wales, that is in all the forests, are discriminatory, they're racist. You need to get rid of them and you need to, or you need to get them reviewed because the, things, the policies are discriminatory. You cannot accuse somebody because they belong to an ethnic group that they're going to cut their daughters. We're all many different people from different nationalities part of that campaign. So we're challenging the, the discourse, the single story narrative on the mm. anti yeah, narrative. But the Somali community, we do talk about it. We, we've done our events in Bristol. Um, the Somali community, the family that had their children, five children taken into care last year in, from Slough, mm -hmm. they did a big event. You know, we managed to get the children returned back to them, but we, that was the case that was talked about in the Victoria Derbyshire show. That's an example of what happens in Slough. They lost all their five kids, but we got them returned. 
So different different areas, different pockets of the community are talking about it and are doing events. We just need to continue creating an awareness of the other side of the story. That's exactly. Sister, Sister Diana, many thanks for uh, such valuable information. And to our audience, thank you so much for tuning in. And I hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by men. And goodbye. Muslima Voices Thank you.